This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. I can see where you're a little confused on this one, because this is not a factory cartridge. What this gentleman was doing... As usual... Uh, the team has come up with some of the questions that folks have sent in in response to our YouTube videos and our blogs on RSO website. They hand me the magical computer on which are the questions. Hmm. And here's one right off the top from Jim. And Jim asks, well, let's see. I understand that MV squared concept, but don't lighter bullets bleed velocity faster. I think what we're talking about is E equals MC squared, uh, Einstein's formula for energy equaling mass and velocity squared. Um, and then lighter bullets bleeding velocity faster. Yeah, uh, with a caveat, big caveat, Jim, and a bunch of them. Dude, the thing with, I think you are probably considering as a shooter, as a hunter, whether you should um, use a lighter bullet or a heavier bullet. And while it's true that a heavier bullet has obviously more mass, so it tends to maintain momentum better than a light bullet. That's because it's got the, the momentum to resist the change that Newton described in one of his laws. Um, I think it was for every, let's see, an object moving in a straight line tends to remain in that straight line until acted upon by another force. There's a rough way of stating it. So the heavier bullet's going to do that. So think of, say, there's a bowling ball rolling in the room and you nudge it with your finger. It's not going to move it off course very much. If it's a uh, ping pong ball and you give it the same energy with your finger, it's going to move it a lot. So that's what we're dealing with. So why would the lighter bullets uh, shed velocity faster than the heavier ones? Because the air friction is slowing them down. Just as simple as that. Unless, and and this is more than a less, this is a you have to consider the air drag on that bullet because that's the major part of making your bullets drop faster. So that has to do with not just the mass of the bullet, but its shape, its form factor. So if you take a bullet's 
diameter and you increase it, you're going to increase its surface area that drags in the air. So that's going to slow it down faster. So that's one way to make a heavier bullet is to make it wider, but it's going to drag more. So the lighter bullet might actually not drop as much at distance as the heavier bullet. Then another way to think of it is if you elongate that bullet, you're going to have more of the mass hidden behind the nose. So it will be more efficient at moving through the air, sort of like a Mack truck versus a Corvette. And uh, that's another benefit of BC and form factor. So getting back to bullets, think of a long, sleek bullet with a long tapered nose and a long tapered boat tail. That is maximizing its effective ability to slip through the air rather than push it out of the way. Go with a flat-nosed bullet, big and blunt and flat, and it's pushing more air. So even though it's heavier than the long, sleek one, it's going to drop faster, shed velocity faster because it's fighting more air drag. And I think that makes a lot more sense than the E equals MC squared or the formula you wrote down here, MV caret squared, whatever that means I don't know how to <laughs> interpret those those scientific formulas all that accurately. But that's basically what's going on. You've got to, to figure all these things out. And the easiest way to do it is by using BC numbers. And that stands for ballistic coefficient. Every bullet is given a measurement or they are measured to determine what their efficiency is while they're flying through the air with the greatest of ease. And the higher that BC number, the uh, better that bullet will resist air drag, which means it's going to retain more velocity and more energy when it gets downrange. And it's going to be deflected in crosswinds the least amount. So traditionally, we've always said, if you want to resist air drag and have more energy downrange, use a heavier bullet. That's only part of the a part of the equation. It has to be an efficiently shaped heavier bullet. So I hope that answered some of your question, Jim. Um, this one is from Philip. Philip asks, what are your thoughts on the 6.5 by 58 1904 Vergara Portuguese rifle? <laughs> My thoughts are, what is the 1904 6.5 by 58 Vergara Portuguese rifle? I've never met one. <laughs> but I think I've got a pretty rough idea of what it is. This sounds like one of the many military rifles made by different nations in those days. Everybody was coming up with one of the hot new um, centerfire rifles using smokeless powder for their militaries. So rather than using the same one or borrowing from a neighbor who they're probably having a conflict with anyway, they made their own and gave them their own names. So a 6.5 means it's obviously a 6.5 millimeter diameter bullet or a 26 caliber. And the 58 in European terminology, very sensibly used, is the length of the case, which gives us a pretty good idea of how long it is, how much powder capacity. Doesn't say anything about the diameter of the case, though. So I'm guessing, given what I know about military cartridges back in those days, it's roughly the same diameter as, say, the 757 Mauser or the 30 6 in our case, or in uh, 
Well, the most famous of these 6.5s, I guess, would be the Swede, the 6.5 by 55 Swedish. That was a military cartridge there, and that came out in 1892. So this one, according to Phil, was a 1904 product. So they were probably looking at that one and saying, how can we make one that's similar? And this might be a little more powerful since it's a 58, not a 55. So there are many of these 6.5 military cartridges. There's the uh, Manlick or Schonauer, the um, famous Carcano, the Italian one. The Japanese had one for the Arasaka rifle, and uh, that's currently known in all the hand-loading manuals I've seen as a 6.5 Jap, Japanese. And that one actually is fairly small. It would shoot probably 200 feet per second more slowly than the 6.5 Creedmoor. Not sure what this Portuguese version would do. And another thing you need to consider, even if the cartridge is bigger than the, say, the Creedmoor, has more powder capacity, it might not be allowed as much chamber pressure. And this is something that is established when they make a cartridge and they get all of the uh, tolerances set up and stuff. They have, well, in this country, we have something called a SAMI spec, and it's an organization that tests all that stuff and says, look, it's going to be no longer than this, no shorter than that, no fatter than this, no skinnier than that. All the tolerances and the dimensions so that everyone can produce rifles and ammunition that fit. So they may have said back in 1904, given the steel quality or the build of their rifles, that it cannot withstand a lot of chamber pressure. So they may have it down around 54,000 PSI. Whereas modern cartridges, and I mean for modern, we're going clear back to the uh, 270 Winchester, 65,000 PSI. So those differences in the allowed chamber pressure could make one bullet cartridge slower than the other one, even though it looks like it should be faster based on volume. All things that you're going to consider, but yeah, do a little research on that and it might be a, just a fine little hunting cartridge. Just the idea that it's a 6.5 at a 58-inch or 58-millimeter case length suggests it probably be right in there with a 260 Remington 6.5 Creedmoor. Good little deer cartridge. All right. Good one, Philip. Now, this is from M's, E-M apostrophe S. M's question is, my son, nine-year-old son, drew an elk cow tag. Well, congratulations, son. <laughs> That's a lucky draw. I hope you get an elk, too. You're going to have a great time going elk hunting, even if you don't get one. Just being out there is fun. And when you see one, holy mackerel, <laughs> it's going to be a thrill. I'm wishing you the most uh, luck you can possibly have. So your dad is asking, is a 243 enough to kill ethically? That is a good question. Now, I commend you on suggesting a 243 for your nine-year-old. Any smaller shooters, small frame shooters who might be affected by recoil can do really well with a 243 Winchester or something quite similar. Six millimeter Creedmoor, six millimeter Remington. But is it going to do the job? <laughs> and that's always argued. But the states allow it. So ethically, the Elk hunting states like Idaho, Montana, Colorado, Wyoming, South Dakota, they all allow the 243 Winchester. Suggest it's probably working pretty well. And just by anecdote, by hearing from folks, they claim it works very well. But then plenty of elk hunters say this is ridiculously too small for elk hunting. You need at least a 338 Win Mag. 
Well, I don't agree with that, but I do agree that a 243 is pretty small. So that requires you to use the right bullet and put it in the right place. And that's again, one of the strong suits of the 243 Winchester is it is so easy to shoot that there's not going to be any chance of flinching. You know, it'll be tough enough for a new elk hunter to maintain his equilibrium, shall we say, and not get buck fever and start shaking and blowing the shot. So I do recommend that you train a lot and have your boy shoot that rifle in all sorts of field positions. And if you can, think of how to put a little bit of pressure on him, like quick, you got to make this shot in five seconds and then have your target out there and have him shoot that target with that sort of pressure, something like that, then really get him trained up well. And also, impress upon him that he does not take a shot unless it's a perfectly open broadside shot and then put that bullet tight behind the shoulder. And I would work with some elk targets if you can find them. So he really gets used to visualizing that shoulder and where the bullet should go behind the shoulder. It doesn't work shooting at paper bullseyes and stuff. You need to have that image. Even if you could borrow, let's say, one of those three-dimensional archery targets of an elk for a few shots. Things like that could really help. But the 243 can do the job. I always tell folks on that one that I knew a guy back in the 80s who had shot 13 bull elk with 13 shots from his 243 Winchester. <laughs> and I'm sure he did just what I suggested. He waited till it was a perfect broadside shot, put it right behind his shoulder. And I mean, once you put a bullet through the lungs and the heart of an animal, it doesn't really matter how big that bullet was or how fast it was traveling or how hard it was hitting or any of that stuff. It's just creating hemorrhaging. Not a lot different from a broadhead from a bow. There's no energy, almost no energy in that, but it's enough energy to penetrate the hide, penetrate the vital organs, and create the hemorrhaging. So good luck on that one, Philip, to you and your son. I think you're going to have a great time. Oh, that was M, not Philip. Sorry about that. Now, Jeff asked a question, what are your thoughts on barrel break-in? That's a frequently requested uh, and I have evolved over the years from break-in to no break-in. I just really have not seen a lot of evidence that it's necessary, especially with a lot of today's better-made barrels. You should understand that barrels are made several ways, the rifling in the barrel. You get your basic barrel blank and you drill a straight hole through it. Hopefully it's straight. And there's your caliber. Now you've got to cut the grooves in it for the rifling to stabilize your bullet. And that's where some trouble can come in. How are you cutting those grooves? Are you cutting the grooves? Are you pressing the grooves in? Or are you hammering it? So cut barrels uh, evolve or are made by pulling a literal cutting blade or several through the barrel to make the rifling grooves. And that cutting action can leave some, as you can imagine, slivers of steel sticking up. And that's what you want to remove when you break it, a rifle in. But most cut barrel manufacturers lap their barrels before they send them out, which means they're going in there with a lapping device, pushing a rod in and out with essentially a lead bullet on the end of it that smooths out those imperfections for you. Now, the, the button-rifled barrels are made by what's called broaching is another way, I guess, of, of saying it, is that they pull this plug through to iron in the rifling grooves, if you can believe it. There's got to be a lot of pressure involved in that one. So those are pretty smooth. And then the other really popular technique for barrel making these days is called hammer forging, in which they take a billet of steel, fairly short one too, 
and they drill a hole through it. There's your caliber. And then they have a mandrel, which is a reverse image of the rifling twist that they want in the, in the barrel. And they put that inside of the billet. I'm sure it sticks out both ends. And then they put this thing in a machine, great big hammer machine that starts beating on that steel until it squeezes it down and around that mandrel to its full length. I mean, can you imagine going from a, a billet about a foot to two feet long at the most? No, not two feet. Let's say more like nine inches to a foot long. And then they hammer it out until it's two feet long. And then there's your 24-inch barrel. Wow, there's a lot of pressure there. But the upside is there shouldn't be any slivers in that. They're not cutting anything. The steel is being forced into a new form around that mandrel. And then the mandrel is pulled out. So I don't think you need to break in those barrels. Um, and also, it's really difficult to prove that if you broke in the barrel, it's going to be more accurate or clean up better than if you hadn't broken it in because it's a one-time deal. You really can't test it both ways. So if you want to be really conservative and not take any chances, go ahead and break your barrel in. But these days, honestly, don't think you need to. And a lot of guys are pointing out that by breaking in a barrel, you're using up some of its life especially in the bigger magnums burning a lot of powder where you've got some barrel burning issues down the road. Do you really want to waste a couple hundred shots just breaking the thing in before you really start using it? I don't know. It's another one of the arguments. All right, good one, Jeff. Now, this is Jack. In your video, fire-forming 7mm Wildcat bangs out minute of angle. How did you get the rounds to fit in the magazine? Did you use a custom chamber? Or is the, the seating depth for that chambering? I can see where you're a little confused on this one because this is not a factory cartridge. What this gentleman was doing, a local friend of mine, Braxton, he had a new barrel made in a Wildcat chambering called the 7mm Sherman Max. And it is a 7mm Remington short action ultra magnum cartridge that is changed a little bit straightened out a little bit more probably on the sidewalls, maybe given a sharper shoulder, maybe even move the shoulder forward a little bit. I'm not really sure. I did not test it. I just went out there to film him as he was breaking in that barrel, <laughs> which we just talked about. He believes in it and he was doing it even though it was a high-end custom barrel. And he was also fireforming his brass and he had really long bullets on that. Because the whole idea with this 7mm Sherman Max is to throw those really long, high ballistic koi fishing bullets for maximum performance at extreme range. And Braxton likes to shoot targets at, get this, two miles away. <laughs> two miles away. He has gotten some four-inch groups at a mile, he claims, with an earlier barrel on that thing. So, wow. At any rate, some people say, well, that's such a long bullet. How does it even fit in there? Obviously, the, the rifle itself is set up for this. So the magazine is long enough to handle it. And he had it custom throated to fit that long bullet. So once he chambers around, the rifling does not start for quite a ways in front of the chamber because of that long bullet. So he's got it perfectly measured to fit that specific bullet. Um, and that's what you don't get in your standard rifle that you buy off the shelf. They are set up for kind of a general purpose load, and that's what all the ammunition companies load for, too. And that's where the, your SAMI specs come into it. Your 30-06 can be no longer than 3.340 inches. It can be a few thousand shorter or something, no big deal. But all of that stuff is really 
fine-tuned on these high-end target rifles, and that's what he was doing. So, yes, his particular cartridge fits beautifully in the chamber in his rifle because it's all custom and set up that way. All right, good one, Jack. Let's see who else is on here. All right, this question is from Jay. Boy, we've got a lot of Jays starting off here. We had a Jeff, a Jack, and now a Jay. Can you talk a little more about your thoughts on the hydrostatic performance of smaller fast bullets versus larger bullets? Which do you think actually does more damage? Oh, good one. And this is, oh man, this is just an argument that's been going on for probably a hundred years, ever since bullets went faster than 3,000 feet per second. And people noticed that sometimes a light little bullet going really fast killed an animal instantly with a chest shot. Wow, what did that? Roy Weatherby came up with a cool answer for it. He called it hydrostatic shock. And wow, what a marketing term that was. And he really pushed that. And as you know, his Magnum cartridges were some of the fastest and still are some of the fastest in the world in their particular caliber. So 270 Weatherby Magnum, 300 Weatherby Magnum, they were fast. 257 Weatherby Magnum, that was Roy's favorite. And he claimed that that was so fast and it delivered such a hydrostatic shock that he could pretty much body shoot anything anywhere and he would kill it. Well, that isn't absolutely true, but boy, it happens sometimes. And what exactly is that? Nobody really seems to have a solid answer. Plenty of people say it's bogus. There is no such thing as killing with hydrostatic shock. And I tend to agree with that because I have autopsied a lot of animals over the years of various sizes. And I've seen a few that died quickly with a chest shot, but then the same chest shot with the same velocity and bullet or even a faster one that should have delivered more hydrostatic shock and you don't see the defect. So that's one of the reasons I'm not real crazy about it. I don't want to rely on it because it is not reliable. Whereas a big bullet making a big hole and creating a lot of tissue damage and such, pretty reliable. You know, you just, it's like, again, like shooting something with a big broadhead. It doesn't have a lot of energy. There's no shock, but you sure do an effective job due to hemorrhaging. And bullets hemorrhage. That's the whole idea. Lungs, heart, vital organs, even a liver, you hemorrhage them quickly and they are going to die. But what happens with these sudden death shots? Some people say that it is the um, plexus, uh, the nerve center. And there are two or three of those in the body of mammals. One is called commonly the solar plexus. I don't know what the official term of it is, but it's where a lot of the major nerves center and then they branch out to the different organs and they suggest that that's kind of just above the heart or so and if you hit it just right that could probably shut down the nervous system the same as shooting the spine in the neck or the brain that may be what's happening another argument is that it's essentially it is hydrostatic shock or hydrodynamic. And one of the proofs of that was a study done on African buffalo during a culling operation in which they kept careful track of how the buffalo reacted to the shot. And then they autopsied the animal to see if they could determine why. So essentially that study said that each one of the buffalo that died instantly as if from hydrostatic shock and they checked with the shot and said that, well, the bullet didn't hit the spine or the column or the brain. So that wasn't what did it. Why did he just suddenly collapse? When they autopsied the brains, they found that they had essentially suffered a stroke. The blood vessels had broken in the brain. How would that happen with a heart shot? 
They assumed that the heart was beating at that moment. Systolic pressure was at its peak. The bullet lands just then. The timing was perfect so that it gave it an extra boost. And it was like, like having a stroke. Too much blood pressure and it blew out the arteries in the brain. I don't know. The evidence seemed to suggest that. And that might be a good explanation of what this hydrostatic shock is. But again, I just don't know that you know exactly where to put that bullet to get that effect. So I am going to go for depending on hemorrhaging. I always want my bullet to hit the vital organs. And boy, the heart lung area is hard to beat because it's so big. If you screw up your shot by an inch or few one way or the other, you're probably still going to score. And it's just darn dependable. Yes, you may have to do some tracking, but it's in the end going to do the job because just not a lot of animals that can live with a hole in their heart and lungs. All right, good question on that one. I'm sure we'll get some blowback on it, but um, that's the way I've seen it play out. Now, here's one from a gentleman called, well, it could be a gentlewoman too, called Thrash. Thrash's question is, what are your thoughts on the Hornady SST bullet in a 270 Winchester for deer hunting? Hey, that's a pretty good pick, actually. Hornady's SST bullet is a good, sleek, uh, high BC bullet. And it has got an interlock ring. Back in the day, I don't know if Hornady still makes its standard line of interlocks. I think they do. But the SST is more of a stylized version of the interlock. In other words, it has a better form factor for higher BC, polymer tip on it for higher BC, but it retains that inside ring of jacket material that helps hold the lead shank in. So you get a little bit better performance that way by not having the lead core separate from the jacket like so many cup core bullets do. And I have seen this work just as advertised. And then again, I've seen it, I wouldn't say blow up, but break up, which is understandable because, for instance, I shot a kudu in Africa through both lungs behind the shoulder, didn't hit any major bones, rib and heart lungs and out the other side. And I gave him two shots at 330 yards, we'd measured it. And both bullets were against the hide on the other side, perfectly mushroomed like an ad in a magazine. Wow, well, at 330 yards, let me think, this was with a seven rem mag, but even at that velocity, by the time that bullet's gone 330 yards, it slowed down quite a bit. And it was just the right impact velocity to do that without tearing up the bullet too badly. Beautiful. But then I shot an Impala inside of 150 yards. I don't remember exactly where it was, but I'm thinking around 125 or so. And then that thing took off. A little Impala with a 7-rim mag and a 160-grain SST bullet. Um, that was uh, unexpected. I would expect that one to have flattened him right out. The bullet broke up inside, and I suspect it was because of that closer range, really high velocity. But um, generally, on an animal that size and a white tail, in a 270 especially, I think that SST bullet's going to do really well. The 270 is, is that cartridge that's starting to get fast enough that you're really testing a cup and core bullet's integrity. And I think that SST with that interlock ring in it is probably just the right tweaking of that bullet's integrity to make it about ideal for a 270 velocity. So I wouldn't hesitate to try it. I think it's going to work out pretty well for you, Thrash. All right, that appears to be the pile of questions I have today, folks. 
So if nobody else in the audience has any more questions, are you there, young lady? Do you have a qu no questions from the, okay. How about the teddy bear in the chair? No, no questions from the teddy bear in the chair. I think that's, <laughs> I think that's it, folks. Hey, I, I want to thank you for sending in your comments and questions. Really appreciate that. I hope I've answered them for you. If I got anything wrong, as always, I invite you guys to send in your corrections here <laughs> and we will give you credit because our objective here is to provide useful, good, solid information. You know, too much of the internet these days is bogus and you don't know what and who to trust. We are trying to give you the straight scoop. So if we screw it up, we do want to be corrected. So I invite you to send in your comments on this video. In the meantime, I invite you to subscribe to the channel and give us a thumbs up. Never hurts to be liked out there. And you can also catch us on Ron Spomer Outdoors regular channel on YouTube. Uh, we've got a lot of gun reviews and a lot of ballistic stuff on there. We talk all about the ins and outs of ballistics and different cartridges and bullets and such. Then there's RSOTV.com. Now that is a subscription service, $5 a month. But on there, we put a lot of really in-depth reviews of rifles. We take them apart. We show you how they work and how you can restock them. We also do hand-loading videos on there and a lot of hunts too. Some African hunts on there. We're going to be doing some more of that stuff. So you might want to check us out there. And you can find RSO TV by going to ronspomeroutdoors.com website. Read some of our blogs. Find the TV channel on there. Look at some of our photography. And just have a oh, good time on there. And find out if there's something you might not be able to complain about. And send in a question of your own for answering on the next episode of Ron Spomer Outdoors Podcast. Questions and answers. Thanks, and until next time, hunt honest and shoot straight. Through the Blackwater bayous and in the dark Louisiana night, floats a duck camp, alive with the sounds of swamp pop and the smells of Cajun cooking. Mississippi Delta in Venice to the Cajun prairies of the Southwest. Me and the Duck Camp Dinners crew will be hunting and eating it all. This is Duck Camp Dinner. Join me, Chef Jean-Paul Bourgeois, and the whole crew every Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. In Wild Country, rules were not created by man. Don't miss Wild Country, Wednesdays from 7 to 11 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Primos. Speak the language. Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.